G-Y-C, do you love Jesus? Are you sure you love Jesus? And why do you love Jesus? Because he first loved me, that's the reason we all are to love him all together. Oh, how I love Jesus, singing, oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. How many of you, that's why you're here tonight? Amen? Because you love Jesus. Tonight, our sermon is entitled, Nothing You Can Do. Nothing You Can Do. Let us pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, it is your time. We have not come to hear the words of a man, or of philosophers, or of politicians, but we've come to hear the Word of God, unadulterated and centered in Jesus. So Father, we pray that you would use this man who is but dust before you, and Father, that you may speak through me, and that you may speak to me that Jesus may be lifted up high and that he may draw every heart to him tonight. Teach us that there's nothing we can do. This is our prayer, and we offer this prayer from our hearts in the mighty name of Jesus. Let all of God's people say, Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. When you're there, you can say amen. Okay, if you're not there, just say have mercy. Okay. Give you a couple seconds. Luke, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Are we there? Amen. The Bible says, Then drew near unto him, all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, the Pharisees gave this criticism of Christ because it was taught by the Jews that before God's love is extended to the sinner, he must first repent. He must manifest sorrow for sin and have a resolution to turn away from it. Then God's love would be extended to you. But in their view, I'm talking about the Jews, repentance is a work by which humanity earns the favor of heaven. In other words, There was something you could do so that the love of God would be extended to you. 
It was this thought that led the Pharisees to exclaim in astonishment and anger, this man receives sinners. You see, in other words, according to the Pharisees, Jesus should permit no one, not one person, to approach him except those who had already repented. In other words, there was something you could do in order to earn the favor and the love of Jesus. But you see, Jesus began to give a parable in your Bible. It says in verse 3, and he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Let's compare this Jewish idea to the parable of Jesus. The Bible tells us in verse 7 that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. How many sinners? One sinner who repents. Now, if the sheep is a picture of the sinner, please explain to me what exactly did the sheep do? From all the verses we read, the only thing I saw the sheep do was get lost. Can you say amen? He had 90, he had 100 sheep, and the only contribution to the story is that the sheep got lost. Now, that means that in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus teaches that salvation does not come through seeking after God but through God's seeking after us. Can you say amen? We do not repent in order that God may love us, but God reveals his love to us. I got to pause right here. But God reveals to us his love in order that we may repent. That means that God loved you before you even repented. That means that God loved you while you were watching the pornography video. God loved you while you were sitting in depression, watching dark videos on YouTube, contemplating your suicide note. God loved you every lie you told, every time you pretended to be spiritual. God loved you while you were masturbating. God loved you while you were having premarital sex with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. God loved you in your greed in your jealousy before you even repented. And God reveals his love to us that we may repent, which means that the love pre-existed the repentance. Can you say amen? amen? Brothers and sisters, you see, the theological perspective of the Jews perpetuated a culture of shame. Shame is defined by Brene Brown, who is an expert on shame. 
This is how she defines it. The intense and painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. The intense and painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. You see, I remember my second daughter, her name is Marari. I was coming home from work, and as I walked in, you know, kids are, when, some other, when somebody else does something wrong, kids are kind of like a newspaper person in the 1950s. Extra, extra, read all about it. Mari messed up Papa's Bible, right? Extra, extra. They just want to advertise because they're like, somebody else about to get this spanking. And so, of course, normally when I come home, all my kids rush the door, Papa, Papa, right? Kids jumping from everywhere. But Marari was not there. So I went upstairs. So my wife was starting worship, and as I walked into the room, right, singing a song, after we sang a song, did our little Bible verse, and then we prayed. So I'm giving my kids hugs goodnight, and I come, and Marari's acting like she doesn't want to give me a hug. She said, it's okay, Papa, you don't have to give me a hug. I said, of course I'm going to give you a hug. Why would I give you a hug? You're my sunshine. That's what I call her. And she said, it's okay, Papa, you don't have to give me a hug. I said, look, come here, sunshine, give, give Papa a hug. She's fighting me the whole time. And finally, as I give her a hug, I said, don't worry, sunshine, I know you messed up my Bible, but you're, you're still my sunshine. And she immediately starts crying and she says, but I don't feel like your sunshine. You see, when you and I fail God, fail our own expectations of ourselves, we feel just like my daughter. Not realizing that you are God's sunshine. You are the brightness of his life. And in that moment when you fail, when you're struggling over and over and over and over and over and over and probably even before you came to GYC. And you're saying there's no way that God still sees me the same. Because this emotion that my daughter was feeling was not guilt. It was shame. She felt unworthy of love. Unworthy to belong again. And the Jews created a culture of shame. And my fear in our time is that we as a church have recreated a similar culture. You see, I want you to go forward in the next parable that Jesus gives on the prodigal son. I'm not going to rehash the whole parable. We know the parable. But I want to start in verse 17 of chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 in verse 17, the Bible says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants, how many janitors, how many low-level slaves, how many people does my dad just hire just for the day? He says, How many of these people of my father's have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger. Notice that it was the goodness of his father to the lowest people in his house that convinced him to come home. 
It was how his father treated the hired servants. These are people who are just waiting just to get a job one day at a time. Nobody wanted to commit to employing them full time, so we're just going to hire you, and then when the job is done, we let you go. And the prodigal son said while he's starving there in pig slop, he said, these are the lowest servants in my father's house. And his provisions for them are so great that they have enough bread and extra. And I'm out here perishing with hunger. I will arise and I'm going to go to my father. But notice what happens. It says in verse 18, and I will say to him, he started preparing a speech, pulled out his laptop, opened up Google Docs. He said, all right, I'm going to start preparing my speech. And the Bible says this was his speech. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no more and no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. You see what that emotion was? The moment he came and he said, I am no longer worthy, he went into shame. The moment he put it in his speech, he was not coming home as a son. He was coming home as a slave. He wasn't coming home as a beloved child, he was coming home as a hired worker. Because we think in our minds, like the prodigal son, you see, based on what I did, based on what I do, based on my struggle, if I come back to God, I'm not coming back as a beloved child of God. I'm coming back as a humble slave and servant. But you see, the moment he said, I am no longer worthy, he was saying, I was worthy before. There was something I used to do that earned my father's love and favor. There was something I used to do that earned my father's respect and appreciation. There was something I used to do that allowed me to be called his son. You see, GYC, the prodigal son, in his shame, was telling us I was worthy before when I was not struggling with lust and pornography and masturbation. I was worthy before when I was not struggling with anger and jealousy and a judgmental spirit. I was worthy before when my devotions were as constant as the sun. I was worthy before when my prayer life was as deep as an ocean. I was worthy before when I was canvassing every single day, praying multiple times a day, selling truth-filled literature. I was worthy before when I was on a mission in the rural jungles of the Amazon or India or Guyana, roughing it for the sake of the gospel. I was worthy before. But you see, my worthiness changed the moment I watched that pornography video. My worthiness changed the moment I engaged in premarital sex. My worthiness changed the moment I started struggling with jealousy and greed. My worthiness changed when someone violated me as a child 
or in a case of sexual assault or violence. My worthiness changed when I stopped praying consistently, studying consistently, and serving consistently. And even though I confess and I feel sorrow for my failure, there is always this nagging burden weighing on my back called shame. Shame is that voice that tells you to be quiet about your struggle. But you see, the less we talk about it, the more you got it. Shame is that voice that tells you who do you think you are. Shame is that voice that tells you you will never be good enough. Shame is that voice that when it calls us, and it taps us on the shoulder, some of us say, I don't know what you're talking about, Brother Sebastian. That has nothing to do with me. I feel completely worthy of love and belonging. Or some of us are saying, Brother Sebastian, I know exactly what you're talking about, and we are not going to talk about that. You want to shut somebody down in the elevator? Talk to them about shame. Shame is the voice that tells us in our inside that we are constantly judging ourselves. That yes, the sermon was great and everybody's coming down and says, yo, your sermon was great. Your Bible study was great. Your ministry was great. Your Sabbath school class was great. And shame is that voice that says, no, you messed up here. You tripped over the Bible verse. They're just telling you that just to be kind, not because they really mean it. Or some of us walk around and we say, well, you're only saying that because you're my husband or because you're my wife. You're only saying that because you're my child or because you're my parent. That's shame talking. Because I'm unworthy. Thriving, shame does in a culture of silence and of secrecy and of judgment. People want to know, how do we get people to come to Wednesday night prayer meeting? Brothers and sisters, if we want to revive prayer meeting, we're going to have to stop praying about lost keys, the sick and the shut-in only. And then we need to start praying about shame. Come to prayer meeting about shameful issues. And when people start hearing about people being delivered, not just from the guilt of sin, but the shame. You see, when shame comes in, shame is that voice that tells men, never allow yourself to be perceived as weak. Don't show emotion. Don't cry. Don't get punked. Don't be afraid. Shame is that voice that tells every single woman that they must be perfect. You see, if you want to be a real Adventist mom, you want to be a real Proverbs 31 woman, well, guess what? You got to be able to homeschool your kids. You got to be able to maintain an amazing devotional life. You got to be able to cook three completely organic vegan meals from scratch using the ingredients in your garden in the backyard while also maintaining a healthy exercise life, serving as the church treasurer, 
and also be a good mother and wife. You got to be every woman and you got to make it look easy. And if you can't, you're a failure and you have no value in life. Shame is a cycle. Shame is directly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, suicide, bullying, eating disorders. You see, this is often what is a big part of us falling into the same sins over and over and over and over again. It is the shame that prevents us from asking for help. Because if you came to prayer meeting and they said, brothers, you know, uh, does anybody have any prayer requests? I'm struggling with masturbation and pornography. How do you think that's going to go over in your church? I mean, the gossip wheel will be active before you even leave Zoom. You know that's Barbara's son. I don't know if she can continue to serve as a Sabbath school superintendent because she needs to get her house in order. What elder is going to come forward and talk about his struggle with pornography? What woman is going to come forward and talk about her jealousy and how she's secretly criticizing other women in the church, but it's all under the guise of, I'm just concerned. Brother Sebastian, I'm not trying to gossip. I'm just concerned about Sarah. And we fall into the trap like bees to honey. Well, what, what's the concern? I'm not trying to gossip, but I saw her at a hotel with... You're like, hold on, what? And what's underneath it all? Shame. Rather than asking for help and saying, I'm jealous of Sarah, I'm going to gossip and hide it under the concept of concern. And you wonder why, creating a culture of gossip and judgment, people are unwilling to come forward. Because they feel, I will not be treated as if I belong to this church family if I tell you this. I will not be a person who is treated as if I am worthy of love if I got pregnant outside of wedlock. You always know when it happens because all of a sudden that young sister stopped coming to church. Because if they see her pregnant... Who knows how they will talk about her, and it will always follow her in the church. Even though the Bible says love keeps no record of wrongs, we got a whole library. And then we say we're like the internet, we don't forget. But you know, all these addictions, all this depression, all this violence, all this suicide is inversely correlated with guilt. See, like this prodigal son, it's okay to confess that we made a mistake. That's what he said, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He's admitting his guilt. 
I made a mistake. But it's not okay to say that we are a mistake. That's the difference. Some of us believe because we are struggling with sin, because we just can't overcome, we don't believe that we've made a mistake. We believe that we are a mistake. You see, I remember on Christmas Day, scrolling on Twitter, and some crazy organization thought it was a good idea to say, hey, tell your abortion stories. So like, wait, let me get this straight. Who thought this was a great idea? I'm going to ask for stories about people who killed their baby on Christmas, the day that we celebrate the birth of the Messiah. But the interesting thing is, as is typical in the internet, it didn't go the way that they thought. One of the first story posts I saw was a person who said, my mom was raped. And other people in our family were constantly suggesting and insinuating to her that she should get an abortion. And that person was Dean Cullinan, who was a preacher at GYC. In 1967, a Canadian woman with 13 children became pregnant. Overwhelmed, she considered having an abortion. But she eventually decided not to, and the child that she had was Celine Dion. Even my own life. I remember asking my parents about how I was conceived. The very first time my mother was ever intimate, she became pregnant with Sebastian Braxton. First time ever. Lost your virginity and pregnancy in the same incident. And I remember hearing this story and thinking to myself, as I heard other people talk about how their parents were like, we just decided we wanted to start having children. We were married, we were settled down in our careers, and we really wanted to have a child. And as I listened to these stories, I was thinking to myself, here I am, just the result of two college students who couldn't control their hormones. And there's no question my parents considered it because the result and the collateral damage of my mom becoming pregnant at an Adventist university outside of marriage in the 1970s and 80s, you will be expelled. And she was. As a foreign student, people were stealing food from the cafeteria just to feed my mom when she was pregnant because a pregnant girl could not remain on campus, but my dad could stay. When I was 13, this really bothered me a lot. And I mean, when I used to get in trouble, I was a bad kid. I gave my mother hell on earth. I hope my mom doesn't go there because I already gave her a taste. 
I was a bad kid. And I mean, when I was in trouble and I would get punishment, you know, you're grounded, go to your room. I mean, my stuff was like a jail sentence. You're grounded for the whole year, literally. I mean, it was just too many crimes. It was like standing before court, count number one, count number two, count number three, 10 counts of disobedience, five counts of disrespect, three counts of stealing from the kitchen without asking. Grounded, nine months. And while I was serving one of my sentences, I was so low, I started wondering if my parents adopted me. You know, kids were dramatic. I was like, I bet I'm adopted. They don't want to tell me. So what I decided to do was I had this scheme in my mind and I wrote a little note like I ran away. I left it on the desk and then I opened the window, you know, with the nice flowy curtain, right? Made it look like I ran away and I hid in the closet. And my mom was calling, Sebastian, come eat. Sebastian, come eat. No response. So she busts in my room. She comes in, she reads the note, and my mom says, boy, come out the closet. <laughs> but you see, in my shame, I just wanted to see my mother cry because she actually thought I was gone. I wanted to see how much my mother would miss me if she actually believed that I was gone. And brothers and sisters, this is what the cross of Jesus was. God wanted to show us that if we were missing, this is the pain, this is the grief, these are the tears that he would cry if we were gone. You see, the antidote, the kryptonite to shame is empathy. To understand why a person would feel unworthy of love, to understand the emotion and to sense that what they need is an affirmation of the relationship. So you watch the shepherd and the father in the parables. You see, when the shepherd came upon the sheep, I love this quote in Christ's Object Lesson. She says, with what relief the shepherd hears in the distance the sheep's first faint cry. Following the sound, he climbs the steepest heights. He goes to the very edge of the precipice at the risk of his own life. Thus he searches. And while the cry, growing fainter, tells him that his sheep is ready to die. At last, his effort is rewarded. The lost is found. Then he does not scold the sheep 
because it has caused them so much trouble. He does not drive it with a whip. He does not even try to lead it home. In his joy. I need you to hear me tonight. In his joy, he takes the trembling creature upon his shoulders. If it is bruised and wounded, he gathers it in his arms, pressing it close to his bosom that the warmth of his own heart may give it life. With gratitude that his search has not been in vain, he bears it back to the fold. Brothers and sisters, we have to thank God that when Jesus told this parable about receiving sinners, he did not present to our imagination any picture of a sorrowful shepherd returning without the sheep. He did not present a picture of failure. The parable does not speak of the shepherd coming up short, but the shepherd being successful. Here is the divine guarantee that not even one of the straying sheep of God's fold is overlooked. Not one is left unhelped. Everyone that will submit to be ransomed, Christ will rescue from the pit of corruption and from the briars of sin. Can you say amen? See, when the father came, the Bible says that he ran when he saw his son a great way off. You see, in those times, an authority figure did not run anywhere. And the father was so desirous to see his son home that he gave up his dignity to run towards his son. And when his son fell down on his feet and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy. The father ignored his speech. Because the father knew something the son never realized. You were never worthy. God does not love us because we are worthy. God loves us to make us worthy. And the crazy thing is, the Bible says that he said to his servants. That means the servants ran with him. They saw the father take off and the servants started running with him. When the Holy Spirit starts drawing near to your heart, angels come just alongside. Just as excited. Brothers and sisters, It's time for us to confront our shame. My son, we were having a family night, and right before I came home to meet them for us to go out for family night, my son dropped my youngest daughter on her back. Don't know why. Don't know what was going on. My youngest daughter was crying and crying because she was hurt. So we end up meeting at the place we were going. And as all the kids are getting out, right, they're like, hey, Papa, hey, Papa, hey, Papa. I'm like, where's Zenon? And in our minivan, it's got the little automatic doors, right? 
that open up. So as my son is coming out of the back seat, the door that's closest to me, he hits the button to close it. Because he's going to go out the other side to avoid me. I said, Zenon, what are you doing? He said, no, this door. So he complies. He comes out the door. He won't even look me in the eye. And I said, son, what's wrong? He won't say anything. I said, is it because of what happened with your sister? He nods. I said, do you feel bad? You feel sad about it? He starts nodding. By this point, he's crying. And I said, you didn't want to see Papa because you, were, you thought I would be upset. He said, yes. And I said, Zenin, look at me, son. In my eyes, there's nothing you can do to make me stop loving. No matter what mistake you make, you're always going to be my guy. Do you understand me, son? And my son hugged me the tightest he's ever hugged me. And he cried. And as the tears started hitting my eyes, I realized I never had a moment like that with my earthly father. But I've definitely had one with my heavenly one. And tonight, to some soul steeped in shame, Jesus is telling you, no matter what it is, no matter the secret sin, no matter the struggle, you're still my guy. You're still my sunshine. And tonight is the night on New Year's Eve to lay down these burdens of shame and to enter into the new year completely light and free, knowing that God has loved you while you were making mistakes. Because there's nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. He loved you already. Even while you were rebelling. Tonight, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Father in heaven, we are ready to get over this shame. We're ready to let it go. There's some people that are ashamed because they are single. There are people who are ashamed because of their secret sin. There are people who are ashamed. Because of past mistakes. They feel unworthy of love and of belonging. And tonight your spirit has gripped their hearts to say even when you failed, you are still worthy of love and of belonging. There's nothing you can do. So if there is a person tonight, this is my first appeal. There's someone, and this is specifically for young men, 
who are struggling with sexual sin. I don't care if it's pornography, masturbation, lust, situation with your girlfriend, but this is specifically for young men first. Your life has been burdened with shame. And shame is going to keep you in the cycle. And tonight you are ready to confront this. It is like no other sin. It is equally the same. And the gospel is equally powerful to deliver you. I only need one young man to come to this altar first because that will inspire the other young men to say, I don't need to be ashamed. But if you are that young man and you are ready to be free and to join hands with other young men to say, we can get ourselves through this, I want you to come to this altar. Come, right here. Because you see, this is where it gets real, GYC. We love to talk about nice, classy sins. But our young men are struggling because I get the messages on social media. I get the texts. I get the calls. Come. Because as young men, this is what's keeping us from being the leaders that God is calling us to be. Because we feel unworthy. Because of shame. Because of our struggles. And the devil is going to keep us bound in shame. I did not share my testimony for almost 10 years because I was ashamed. That if I tell my testimony, people are going to ask me, what did you do? Why did you go to jail? What happened with this? But I had to get over the shame. And once my obsession became the glory of Jesus' name, once my obsession became, I'm not going to want a miracle, I want to be a miracle. And we live in a culture that tells men, you can't ask for help. You don't get to struggle. Now my next appeal is for that girl, that young woman, that mother that is struggling to try to live to some unattainable expectation of what she believes she's supposed to be, to be a godly woman. And she's tired of the shame. Come. Because we're going to leave that with Jesus. Your skirt's not long enough. Your hair's not right. You're not dressing well. You can't be this. You can't be that. No matter what you do, you will never be good enough. Tonight is the night to let go of that shame. There's some girl thinking, oh, the reason I'm still single at my age, dealing with shame. There's some mother that says, I just can't do it all, dealing with shame. But even though you can't be perfect, even though you can't do it all, you are still worthy of love and belonging. Even though we as young men have our struggle, you are still worthy to be called the son of God. You are still his son. And you don't got to come far. He's going to meet you a great way off. These are the moments that are defining moments.
These are the things that make the word of God true and undeniable to the world around us. When people say, you don't know where I've been. You don't know the depths where Jesus brought me from. You don't know the shame. Because the righteousness of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, does not just deliver us from the guilt, but the shame. Because the moment you accept Christ, you are covered. He told his servants, we don't got time for a speech. Change his clothes. Restore his authority. Put sandals on his feet. And for every young woman who thinks, well, when I'm this, and when I can get my hair done and be ready and do this, then I will be worthy of love and of belonging. That's over tonight. You're already worthy. God reveals his love to you to make you worthy. That's what makes a woman of God beautiful. Because she's already confident in God's love. She doesn't need a man's love. She doesn't need a man's attention. She doesn't need other girls to compliment her dress. I know that the God of the universe, the king, says, you are a great mother. I know that the king of heaven says, you are as beautiful as the night sky. You are heaven to me. When we let go of this shame, we can go into 2022 completely different people. Let us kneel together and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you have spoken in this place. You have moved in this place. And Father, there are hundreds of young men who have come to this altar because we've been haunted by the demons of lust, secretly grappling with shame, feeling unworthy to be the spiritual leaders that you've called us to be. And Lord, that's why we're here, because we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. We may struggle, we may fall, but the just man falls seven times and rises again. That's why we're here tonight, to go into 2022 saying, we kept getting up. That we are here to leave the shame. To accept that regardless of the mistakes we have made. We have made mistakes, but we are not a mistake. So Lord, we are praying that as we turn to Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Remind us that there's nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God. There's nothing that we can do that can deliver us from our situation. Jesus and Jesus only. And through his righteousness, we are pure and clean and loved and accepted and we belong. We've been adopted into the heavenly family. We are still your sons. And Father, for your daughters, 
who the world has made them feel less than, who has placed before them an unattainable standard, who has told them that they have to be every woman just to be a woman. Lord, tonight you are reminding them that they are still your sunshine. That they can still see that even when she can't do it all, she is still worthy of love and belonging. She is still your daughter. She is still your princess. She is still the apple of your eye. She is still your child. Lord, we pray that as we leave these burdens with you, Father, may we rise from our knees free. May we rise from our knees loosed from the chains of shame. And may we go forward knowing that we're not trying to strive against our struggles to be worthy of the love of God, but because we are worthy. Because Jesus has already revealed to us his love. This is our prayer. And we trust that you will help this to be our experience. For we offer this prayer from our hearts. Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC Conference Nothing in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.